he basically took the methods of the street dealer and applied them to the top of the trade. When he did dive into that world, he rose very, very quickly. People in his mobile phone would be Moroccan cannabis farmers, Colombian cocaine producers, Turkish heroin godfathers. And at one time, he would have been one of probably four or five key individuals in the whole of the UK who was at the very top. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. He's Liverpool's most infamous criminal and has just been placed on a crime watch list in advance of his release from prison. Curtis Cocky Warren broke records for the largest shipments of cocaine and heroin into the UK while corrupting the highest-ranking Merseyside police officer to ever take a bribe. In prison, he killed a fellow inmate and had an affair with a female officer. And his fame was cemented when his drug fortune was declared in a courtroom to be more than 200 million euro. This week, I'm talking to crime author Peter Walsh, who has delved deep into the life and times of Warren in his book, Cocky, and into the gangland history of Liverpool in drug wars. He tells me how Warren was mentored to the top of the underworld by a shadowy elder, how he was amongst the first Merseyside drug lords to deal directly with the Cali cartel, and how his legacy has left an indelible mark on his native city and helped turn it into a second Amsterdam. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Manchester, Cardiff, Leeds, Newcastle, they've all had a kind of a revival in many ways. Um, But in Liverpool's case, I do wonder how much of that is down to illicit money. Um, If you think of how much of the world economy is attributed to illicit drugs, I saw a United Nations figure once, which I think was about 8%. Well, in a city like Liverpool, that must be a lot higher because it's so important in trafficking terms for for various odd historical reasons. But it is kind of comparable, I suppose, to a to a, a Naples or a Marseille or a Palermo in that respect, or or in Amsterdam. Wow, um, I mean, you know, we hear about it here all the time because there's so many links with the Irish drug gangs and the Liverpudlians and. Uh, in all that, in, in all you're telling me there about Liverpool and uh, how important it is as a, a, the crime hub, really, of the UK, um, there is one character that is synonymous with all that and who keeps coming back, maybe to haunt you, Peter, after after um, your book, Cocky, and it's, it's still a, a bestseller. But Curtis Warren, um, only in recent weeks has been placed on a, a an NCA crime watch list, which is something I don't think we have here. You might explain it to us, but um, that is preempting possibly his release over the next year or two. We don't really know when he's going to be released, but it looks as if he's coming to the end of his sentences. So what is that, that crime watch list? So this is a, a relatively new initiative. And the idea, I think, behind it is to prevent people who might be regarded as possibly incorrigible criminals or certainly people who there is reason to believe might return to serious crime after their release from prison. It's a way of kind of preventing that. So uh, there would be severe restrictions on their ability to travel outside of the UK. Um, There would be restrictions on their access to communications devices and the internet and telephones, um, quite severe restrictions on the amount of assets they could hold, um, um, down to a a maximum of £1,000, I believe. Um, Their involvement in businesses that might involve import or export, that kind of thing. So it's the kind of draconian legislation I think we've seen introduced increasingly to combat the so-called war on drugs, which which hasn't been a very successful war uh, in the past 50 or 60 years, if you look at the volume of trade. 
but uh, it's part of the um, the trend, I think, um, recently in the UK, certainly to seek ever more sort of far-reaching legislation and ways of combating a problem that other methods have so far failed to combat. I can't imagine what Curtis Warren could possibly possess um, that would be worth under a thousand pounds. He owes, of course, a mere one hundred ninety-eight million to the UK Exchequer, but we'll we'll come to that. <laughs> um, wonder what that looks like on a container. But um, <laughs> he his last sentence was in twenty thirteen. He was already in jail at that time, and that is in relation to not paying that 198 million, which uh, was deemed, he was deemed to have made in his criminal career. Um, He was serving time in Jersey and is serving time currently in the UK, uh, in prison in the UK. But who is Curtis Warren? And um, what made him like probably the most infamous Liverpudlian criminal? So Curtis Warren was a a mixed race, youth from the Toxteth area of Liverpool, um, which is obviously a um, a high um, minority ethnic area, um, sort of black mixed race area of the city. Um, He came to adulthood during the late 70s, early 80s, at a time when youth unemployment in Liverpool was very high. um, And there were very strong tensions with the police, partly racial tensions. So the area where he lived in Toxteth was the scene of the most horrific riots in 1981, among the worst that have ever been seen in the UK. And so he grew up in this sort of environment where there were no jobs, um, there was street violence, there was a lot of crime, uh, drugs were starting to sort of drift into the communities and Liverpool was just on the cusp of a major heroin problem round about the same time I suspect as Dublin in Ireland um, and so Warren like unfortunately many of his friends and contemporaries got involved in petty crime I mean I think his earliest conviction was about the age of 12 or that that's where the earliest records are um, they used to keep a register of youth offenders in Liverpool and he was on that register and it was things like um, stealing cars or being driven as a passenger in a stolen car Um, And then sort of street muggings and um, burglaries and that kind of thing. And eventually, I guess you could say graduated to more serious offence of armed robbery later on in the 80s. So, you know, he would have served time in young offenders institutions and prisons. And at each stage, instead of being deterred, he he kind of seemed to um, move up to a higher level of criminality. But again, the background he was coming from, there was a distinct lack of opportunities. Interestingly, a lot of people from that same background in that period left Liverpool, either looking for work or in a minority of cases, looking for criminal opportunities. And Warren was one of them. And he joined this kind of criminal exodus to Europe where they often found that um, things like thefts, particularly from, from shops, was a lot easier than it was in the UK, that the security was a lot less lax. And he, he cropped up in Switzerland in 1987, where he got a, a conviction for shoplifting expensive sportswear uh, in, a, in a, a town that you wouldn't have expected to find a sort of mixed-race scallywag from Liverpool. Um, but um, that, that was he wasn't alone again in that. That was a part of a sort of diaspora of, of, uh, of youth from Liverpool who were sort of travelling at that time, a lot of them going to Holland and making connections there with the um, sort of well-advanced at that stage Dutch underworld. And that fed into the the drug trade later on and to partly the Liverpool predominance in it. But when Warren would have come back from Switzerland, so the late 80s, he was not known particularly at all by uh, drug investigators as somebody who was on their radar as a as a major drug either dealer wholesaler or importer he simply was not of that level others were and at some stage something lifted him from this if you like street level to the kind of stratosphere of the the very top of the uh, the trade in the UK. And at one time, he would have been one of probably four or five 
uh, key individuals in the whole of the UK who was at the very top of the trade. And Peter, when he returned from Switzerland that time, up until he goes to Switzerland, he sounds like he has a very well-worn path. We've heard from so many, they they move from petty crime to more organised, armed robberies, etc., and eventually wind up in the drug trade. But uh, the Switzerland thing is, I haven't heard that um, that avenue before. Maybe it was just a fashion at that stage. But... Um, He's only in his early 20s when he returns to Liverpool, is he, after making those connections in, in Holland? He'd have been in his mid-20s. Mid, mid he was born in 63. Right, so he's still very, very young at this point. Still young, and as I say, he'd been known to the, um, uh, the Beat Bobbies and the street detectives in that area of Liverpool, but he wasn't known as an importer um, of drugs. Um, but at that time, there were others moving in the background who were making these big connections. And there's a, there's a couple of things that are, I think particularly interesting about Warren is that he, when he did um, dive into that world, he rose very, very quickly. The second thing about him was that he basically took the methods of the street dealer and applied them to the top of the trade. So he basically, you know, you, you'd expect a street dealer to be the tool of his trades basically as a mobile phone and, and his connections and his ability to do deals, to buy and sell. Well, Warren took that and basically elevated it to an international level. So the people in his mobile phone would be Moroccan cannabis uh, farmers. They would be Colombian cocaine producers. They would be Turkish heroin godfathers rather than, you know, Joey on the next estate who we might be selling half a key to. Um, but the method was ultimately the same. You know, he, he had to. He couldn't write anything down, um, or, or very little. He had to. He had to do all this in his head. It was very much down to personal relationships. Did people trust you? How could you get on with them? He's a very personable guy, um, very trustworthy. Uh, his organisation tended not to use violence unless absolutely necessary. They were they were very much into business, and they were kind of extremely confident. They it didn't phase them the idea of doing deals with people who didn't speak the same language thousands of miles away for huge amounts of money with enormous transport difficulties facing the best law enforcement in the world they were quite happy to go ahead and tackle this you know and when they when you when you describe them as sort of his group is he somebody at this point who has an older mentor um you know somebody more experienced than him maybe leading him you know, into into uh, a kind of deeper into organised crime. Are are they younger than him? Are they are they coming up on the streets? His his gang. The suspi- the suspicion, the strong suspicion, um, has always been that um, there were older people in the background, partly partly mentoring and partly initially putting up the funding for these large importations. So. Um, the story, as far as we know it, and these things are still vague is that round about 1989, um, a couple of guys from Liverpool made a connection with guys who were linked to the Cali or the North Valley cartel in Colombia. And they made a direct personal connection and imported initially by yacht uh, at least one and and possibly more than one large shipments of cocaine. And um, Warren knew these guys and at some stage effectively supplanted them and um, took over, if you like, the, the links, particularly with a, they, they'd sent a salesman, effectively, to Europe, a young guy called Mario Halley, to represent them. And um, Halley and Warren became very friendly. They met at um, expensive hotels in Amsterdam, and they cooked up a deal to bring 500 kilos of cocaine to the UK, part of a bigger load that was going to Europe generally, but the British end was 500 kilos. Now, Curtis Warren at that time would not have been able to buy, nor would he have had the credit to obtain 500 kilos um, of cocaine. But the people behind him did. And so this, his role really was the guy who sorted out the deal, effectively. The front man. The front man, yeah, yeah. And he, he had, obviously, he had the skills and the nerve and the moxie to do that. And that importation was a success. And the 
the sales of that 500 kilos, which would have generated many tens of millions um, ultimately on the street in the UK, not only sort of made Warren and those behind him, but, but probably set on the road a number of other drug importation gangs in Liverpool and beyond because that gave them money that they'd never had before. Um, and they almost immediately commenced an even bigger importation, which was for 900 kilos, which would have been at that stage by far the biggest importation to the UK anyone had ever come across. But um, the police and customs were onto them. They, they'd missed the first load, even though they'd known roughly that it was coming in. But they got the second load. But what they failed to uh, obtain was the sufficient evidence to secure a conviction at court. So Warren and his immediate cohorts were arrested. They were sent for trial at Crown Court. But the case against Warren collapsed and um, he, he walked free and famously allegedly told one of the customs officers out court that he was off to spend his 87 million quid from the first shipment and they couldn't touch him for it. Um, he denies this through his lawyer, but the customs officer who was there insists that he did say it. But there you go. So um, so that operation they were bringing in from, from, from memory, they were bringing in the cocaine. Firstly, sorry, was there, was there a big cocaine habit in the UK at that stage or did the amount they brought in and pushed it through the market sort of increase the usage? That's a great question, Nicola. It, it's a sort of chicken and egg situation in this period. Um, the demand for cocaine was clearly growing. There had not been a big demand in the UK uh, right up to really the mid-80s for cocaine. Uh, when there was a market for stimulants in the UK, particularly among the working class communities, it was more of an amphetamine market. It wasn't co cocaine. Um, but cocaine started to come more and more into the country in bulk. I think as the Colombian gangs uh, saturated the US market, or re at least were reaching a kind of a, a level there, they were looking more and more to Europe. And at the same time, we'd been through, um, in the late 80s, the sort of dance scene and the rave scene, which introduced a lot of young people who would not perhaps otherwise have, have, have dabbled in drugs uh, to ecstasy and this sort of club drug and the social drug scene. And that proved, I think, to be, for the drug trade, a, a brilliant precursor to cocaine. It sort of laid the groundwork that it was acceptable to go out at the weekend and, and take these um, you know, nightclub stimulant drugs. So the country was kind of ready, I think, for cocaine. And by bringing in these huge amounts, they were not only able to manipulate the supply, but they could manipulate the price and suddenly make it much more obtainable. And so I think you had a market that was kind of primed and ready for it, and it was Warren and his cohorts and perhaps one or two London gangs as well, but nobody else who were the first people really to cash in on this and to, to seize the opportunities that that presented. And again, the Cali cartel placing their own man within Europe, that I suppose is the beginning of the South American and Central American cartels seeing the potential of the market they have in Europe? Absolutely. They were doing that more and more, particularly with Amsterdam as a hub, where there's a, a big expat Colombian community, but also in Spain as well, again, because of the, you know, the same, same language. So they were using those two um, places as key points, really. Well, obviously, in Spain, there was a very well-established British community, particularly on the Costa del Sol area, but also elsewhere as well. And in Amsterdam, there were already well-established British criminals who'd been buying large amounts of cannabis from the Dutch from the 70s onwards, really, and um, to a lesser extent, a heroin market as well. Um, and then ecstasy also, a lot of that was produced in the low countries. Um, so again, they were buying there. So that was the place, Amsterdam in particular became, I, I call it the stock exchange of the European drugs trade or even the world drugs trade. That's where the deals are done. That's where you'll find the Moroccans, the Colombians, the Turks, um, you know, the Iranians, uh, and all the sort of major players, the Chinese, involved uh, in the highest levels of the trade, and that's where they're doing their deals. And um, British gangs, Liverpudlians prominent among them, had, a, had a, a very strong presence there and got on very well with the Dutch. You know, they shared a similar sense of humour 
um, similar sort of dress sense, similar interests. They love their football, they love their beer, they love their nightlife. And so they, they got on very well and found it a very easy environment to work in. Yeah, and I can see that you can see the Irish move in there then towards the, the mid to late 80s and into the 90s. So th- this investigation was complex and it involved the bringing in of the cocaine and inglots, I think, into the UK. Um, the customs and police were trying to work together in this investigation and they'd never do get on, do they? And they remain sort of you know, silent enemies. Yeah, um, it's a question it whether is. they were trying to work together or trying to work against each other some of the time. I but, know. Um, Sometimes you feel like tearing your hair out when you look at these investigations. You go, why can't you all just get on? But, um, you know, complex reasons why that failed and why Curtis Warren and his comrades walked free from a court. But nonetheless, the idea of somebody like him facing the law of the state and winning is usually when you see that, it absolutely empowers these people. It empowers these guys. They do feel completely untouchable. If they did before, they really do after they walk free uh, on a rap sheet. Sure. And um, I think it might also be one of the reasons why, you know, Warren, rightly or wrongly, is kind of infamous today also, because he became this kind of poster boy or target boy for law enforcement, you know, having having got away once in such high-profile circumstances for what was at that time the biggest ever cocaine importation into the UK. Um, clearly, there was a feeling that they had to they had to do something about this. And they also that they had to do something about these interagency squabbles which had dogged the investigation. So what they did um, very soon after his release, they laid the groundwork for a new operation with the generic name of Operation Crayfish. And this was not targeted at Warren specifically, but he was to be part of it. But it was to look at um, Liverpool drug trafficking generally. And bearing in mind that he was regarded as the top of that tree, you can see that whether they said it explicitly or not, he he was a a clear target. But what was interesting about that were two things. One, that they, they police and the Customs and Excise really got together around the table and worked out some proper rules of engagement together and they they worked very closely together and very well together for the next few years. But what was also interesting was that in the very early stages of Crayfish, they trailed a lorry which came in, it, it had driven from Turkey, came through Holland and came to the UK and they had intelligence that it had, it was carrying heroin and um, it, it came to a service motorway service station in the northwest of England, and Warren was seen to drive in to the service station. So this was not long after his release from, from on remand from prison. He'd walked free, and here he was, back on the plot. He didn't approach the driver, he didn't approach the lorry, he had a good look round, and he drove off. When the lorry was stopped and searched, they found 180 kilos of heroin uh, secreted in trays in the base of the trailer. That was, at that time, the biggest ever seizure of heroin in the UK. So here you had this guy who a couple of years earlier had virtually been unknown in the drug world. And within the space of less than two years, he'd been associated with both the biggest ever cocaine importation and the biggest ever heroin importation into the UK. So clearly this this guy was of major interest to law enforcement. And so they went after him. But what they found... (laughs) Their investigation was hampered for a while because he had a motorbike accident and he he hurt his leg and he was effectively out of action for a while. But they concentrated on other arms of his organisation and they started to take out seizures. And what they found was that they were dealing with all sorts of drugs. So they were getting seizures of ecstasy, they were getting amphetamine, they were getting LSD, they were getting cannabis, they were getting cocaine, they were getting heroin. These guys were dealing everything which again was quite unusual. The drug groups at that time tended to do one product or another. Um, Then Warren moved and he disappeared. Uh, And the reason for this really was there was a sort of a gang war going on in Liverpool at the time, um, which followed the shooting dead of a guy called David Ungi. And some of Warren's friends were implicated in the shooting. Warren himself was not directly involved, but the people were regarded as friends of his. There was a lot of tension and there was armed patrols on the streets of Liverpool for the first time since the war. They actually had armed patrols on the streets of a 
a British, well, a British mainland city. Obviously, in Northern Ireland, they were well used to those. Um, and Warren relocated to Holland, where he thought they they wouldn't know he was there, they wouldn't be able to tap his phones, and he'd be able to develop his organisation, and was out of the reach of British law enforcement. Um, the British eventually found out where he was. There wasn't much they could do. So they went to the Dutch and they said, will you launch an operation into this guy? He's the biggest we've got. And the Dutch said, he might be the biggest you've got. He ain't the biggest we've got. And they're not causing any particular trouble. You know, our government wants us to concentrate on people who are shooting each other or throwing grenades at each other or whatever. These guys might be smuggling drugs, but they're not causing any trouble on the streets of The Hague or Amsterdam or Rotterdam. But eventually the Brits prevailed on the Dutch to launch an operation and they launched an operation called Mix and they tapped Warren's phone. And it was that that led to his ultimate downfall because he was talking perhaps more freely than he would because he didn't think anyone was onto him. Now, Peter, before we start listening in to what he was saying there in Holland, what sort of a character was Curtis Warren? I mean, what made him tick? Was he somebody that... You said earlier he was a typical sort of charming Liverpudlian type. Um, you know, was he a drinker? Was he a smoker? Did he take drugs himself? Or, or what, what was his weakness? No, by his own accounts, he, he doesn't drink or smoke. Um, not, not known for taking drugs. Um, you know, ran a, ran a fairly sort of well-disciplined um, ship, but he wasn't... Um, he wasn't a disciplinarian. He wasn't a, you know, a, a, I, I'm the big boss. And he was kind of first among equals. Um, so he's, he's the kind of people around him were, you know, there were as, as much a sort of bunch of pals as, a, as they were a, a, a disciplined sort of drug organisation. They would go playing squash. Um, some of them would go fishing and they, the Dutch used to try and sit next to them and fish next to them and, and listen into what they were saying. Um, but I... I think their, their, their sort of biggest leisure activities, they love the nightlife of Amsterdam. Or, um, they love the women. They love the, the they would visit the, the brothels, which is, um, you know, it's a great, uh, a great way of uh, avoiding the entanglements of uh, uh, romantic entanglements when you're living a criminal lifestyle can be very dangerous. Um, they love their cars. I mean, he, he loved his expensive cars. He liked to spend money on property, clothes, just, a, I suppose, they're kind of a, the sort of, but, but clothes, but not blingy clothes, you know, sort of very, very sort of expensive, smart, casual clothes. Um, they, were, they were a pretty laid back bunch, really. They didn't cause a lot of hassle. They didn't cause a lot of trouble, but you wouldn't want to cross them. That would that would describe Warren as much as it would describe his his crew, really. Was there any sort of willing women along the way, shall we say, rather than ones that were were purchased? Oh, absolutely, yes. I mean, for for a lot of this period, um, uh, Warren was in a, a steady relationship um, with a woman whose father was a well known sort of old school Liverpool figure. Um, he was once um, once said in court to have been regarded as heavily involved in the drugs trade but he um, and he was certainly targeted by HM Customs and others uh, in drug investigations but to the best of my knowledge he has no drug convictions but uh, eventually he was convicted of serious financial offences at one stage a million pounds was found in his back garden so there was a, a always a, a belief among law enforcement that um when we talked earlier about Warren having mentors or sort of people behind him, that uh, that his girlfriend's dad would have been one of those those figures. Crayfish, the 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 Dutch decide, the, the Dutch eventually did start listening in to were they they were tapping his phones, I presume, and as you said, they were trying to sidle up to him while he was fishing, which is <laughs> peculiar. Um, but what sort of things were they hearing, or what did they discover? Well. The key difference uh, between phone taps in Holland and in the UK is that in the UK, they're not evidential in court. So you can, uh, you can adju adduce evidence that phone calls were made to a particular number or between two numbers, but you are not allowed to disclose the contents of those calls, even if you've illicitly recorded them. 
Um, in Holland, of course, the system is completely different and phone taps are evidential. And um, so that that was a big problem for Warren. So the Dutch produced, um, with the help of English translators, a voluminous um, record of the details of these calls, which became known as the Dutch product. And the Dutch product has um, Warren, for example, making numerous calls to... He sent a guy over to Colombia to um, negotiate further cocaine shipments on his behalf, um, a Mancunian called Stephen Mee, who was on the run himself from, from prison at the time. And Mee acted as his representative uh, with the cartel, conducting the discussions face-to-face. So there were numerous calls with him, numerous calls to uh, the guys who were running his cannabis operation from the Costa del Sol. So these were the guys who were receiving and distributing his uh, Moroccan cannabis um, conversations with um, uh, Dutch and Turkish guys who had his links into the Turkish heroin trade who were sourcing his heroin. So they were able to put together a picture, really, of everything he was dealing with and every one he was dealing with. He was also speaking to people in, in the UK and Liverpool who were either ordering the drugs through him or were distributing his drugs once they got to the UK. So he would typically deliver what they call groupage loads, where if, if he had a lorry, for example, if he had a corrupt lorry driver who was prepared to take a load back, they might have uh, a ton of cannabis on board, maybe 50 kilos of coke, 50 kilos of heroin, a couple of million ecstasy tabs or whatever. And each of these or part of each of these would be going to different customers. So if you think Warren is juggling all of this, again, as I say, from a, from a mobile phone or numerous mobile phones from his, his little hideout in, in, in Holland, um, it, <laughs> you have to have some grudging admiration for the, the sort of skill and um, the sheer um, work ethic that it takes to do that because it's literally 24-7. There's no, there's no days off in this business. If some heavy, horrible mobster in Manchester, he's waiting for his 20 kilos of nasty and it hasn't arrived. He's not, he doesn't want to hear that you've gone skiing for a couple of days or you're looking after the kids. You know, he wants to know what's going on. Yes, yes. There's no let up, in other words. Now, I know a lot of the transcripts and they're fascinating are in your book, Cocky. Um, but tell me, was he careful on the phone or was he speaking in code? Was he aware? They, they used, they used was... a code. So they did, you know, mm. they, they had the normal codes. So uh, like guns were squirts and, um, you know, a thousand pounds was a bag of sand and they would have, you know, um, ecstasies with the, the little things or cars or those. So they had all those. They also had this scouse slang, um, which the, the Dutch found incomprehensible, um, there's a form of, of sort of street slang in Liverpool called backslang, which uh, it is said was initially used by prostitutes so they could talk about customers to other, in, in, to other prostitutes without the customers knowing what they were talking about. And it basically involves talking extremely fast, but also putting syllables in the middle of words. Um, so a, B, you might put AB in the middle of a word, so coal would be coable or whatever. And um, uh, yeah, and they but they do it so quickly that it's impossible unless you're used to it to decipher what they're what they're saying. So if they were using um, sort of euphemisms for words and talking in backslang as well, the Dutch were often completely perplexed, and sometimes even the Brits who helped them sort of translate were perplexed as well. Unless you were a, a born and bred scouser yourself and you'd heard this stuff, but they would. Um, they would do things like, well, on one occasion they, they told the Brits that they had to look out for a guy leaving the UK on a motorbike and getting on a ferry. And the Brits were a bit puzzled because they weren't aware of any of the gang um, ever using a motorbike before to, to travel to Holland on, on business. And they listened back to the to transcript and it was one of Warren's crew telling one of the guys in Liverpool to get on his bike and come over. So he, he basically meant hurry up and come over, but they assumed he meant bike. So there was lots of just sort of minor misunderstandings. But they weren't, they weren't as discreet as they should. I mean, they actually caught Warren on phone telling or complaining about his own group, saying they're not, they keep talking on the phone, I'm telling them not to, you know. And uh, 
on one occasion he likened himself to Jesus Christ having to deal with his errant apostles who never did what he told them. But on the other, then then he'd make a call and he'd be indiscreet himself. So it's, it's the age old problem of of any mobster trying to run one of these massively successful drug businesses, international transport and everything that goes with it, that they need the communication system. But the communication system is the problem and is really where they get because it's it's when they're transporting the drugs, really, that they need to make those actual plans. One of the things that I didn't realise as much, even having written Cocky, until I came to do this this book, Drug War, and, and to speak mm. to a lot of customs investigators, was the absolute paramount importance of telephone tapping. Um, that, um, they, as you say, they have to communicate over distance. And until sort of encrypted internet... Um, communication came came in. There was no other way of doing it, really. Uh, when pages came in, they were very popular for a time, but then law enforcement quickly learned how to clone pages. Mobile phones gave them a problem for a while, but then they cracked mobile phones. Um, but it's, it's absolutely key. And again, that's because distance is crucial and you have to communicate over distance. And if you travel... You are then laying an incriminating trail because you you have a you have travel documents that prove that you went to this place and met this person at such and such a place. So it's much easier to talk if you can get away with it. And the other thing is transport. Drug trade. The drug trade essentially is about logistics. It's about transport. It's easy enough to buy drugs in a in a source country, and it's very easy to sell them on the streets of Dublin or wherever. The tricky bit is getting them from A to B. And that basically is drug trafficking in a nutshell. It's a transport and logistics business. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. if you want to trap drug traffickers, that's what you concentrate on. So he's eventually caught in Holland. They can only keep those sort of wiretaps going for six months, I think. And he makes an arrangement to send a shipment uh, transport and he gets caught. He's receiving a shipment. He's waiting for, I think it was about 300 kilos or so of cocaine, which was coming via Venezuela. Um, Under Dutch law, uh, an an order for wiretaps can be done without telling the people that you're tapping for six months. But after six months, you have to inform them that their phones are tapped. So time was running out for Mix, but but fortunately they had this big shipment coming in. They'd, they'd had loads of other information of other shipments as well. And they eventually launched a series of raids on Warren and Co, discovered some weapons, um, some other drugs and this huge quantity of cocaine. And he went on trial. He denied the charges. The, the evidence was pretty conclusive. And um, he got uh, what in Dutch terms was a, a long sentence. I think it was 12 years but it was, I think it was 12 years without um, parole. So it was a full 12 years. So it would be the equivalent in the UK to a 24-year sentence because typically you get 50% parole. Mm. And in a tough prison over there. Yeah, in a prison called Vught, which is probably at that time had the... I mean, Dutch prisons are not normally known to be tough. Uh, the, the, you know, the regime was regarded generally as fairly liberal, but Vught was a, an absolute outlier and may have had the strictest regime of any prison in Europe. So at, at one stage, he even had had difficulty even talking to his legal representatives. He was held in such close conditions of, of um, security. Mm. And while there, he, he did kill a Turkish criminal. So showing his, obviously, in a, in a very tough environment like that, you, I'd say you pretty much have to move in quick um, or else you become the victim. The, just to go back a little bit to crayfish for a second, you know, what was special about that? It, it was a sort of a, a way of investigating that went around the outside. So their, their, their central figure was, was Warren. He's in the middle and they start trying to take down the outer layers of his Yeah, if you business. can't get the hub of the wheel, you go for the spokes and you start... You start th- that has two effects. Obviously, it damages the organisation. It damages their, their relationships with their suppliers. It might mean that they owe money because they've lost a shipment. But it also means that the more you take out the more remote figures, the more the people at the centre have to start doing things themselves because things are going wrong. And that's true of all of all uh, drug organisations and is one of the reasons why that technique is often employed. It's often difficult to get to the main guys, but if you start taking out the peripheral guys, the main guys have to get more and more involved and that's when they start to make mistakes. 
So crayfish continued, even, uh, even after the Dutch had arrested Warren, into these other organisations who, who were linked to him in one way or another and was hugely successful, took out over a period of three or four years huge amounts of all different kinds of drugs um, being smuggled into the country in all kinds of different uh, methods. They even found that some British army soldiers had been corrupted and were smuggling drugs back into the UK. Um, they found drugs being smuggled on uh, children's coach trips to Europe, um, huge amounts of cannabis. I mean, at one time, Warren's organisation, the, the Moroccans had a crackdown um, on cannabis dealers in the mid-90s on their cannabis manufacture. And it was described to me as a pretty much medieval methods of crackdown. And almost nobody could get any cannabis out of there. But Warren's organisation still managed to get several tonnes out, which shows you how well connected they were into Morocco. But crayfish, yes, continued great success. The, the people, they worked their fingers to the bone. Um, they were located in a, a secret um, former military establishment. It's never been revealed actually where they were based, but they were took them outside any police or customs um, offices so that there'd be no leaks. Um, they were obviously always worried about corruption and leaks. And it was usually successful. But as with all of these things, eventually with budgets and um, priorities change, and eventually it sort of fizzled out round about uh, 1999 uh, mm-hmm. and, and crayfish was no more. And one of the one of the key parts of it as well, of course, was that um, it resulted in the discovery of Elmore Davies and how he was a very high-ranking police officer who was on the um, the payroll, really, of Curtis Warren or... or um, was taking, you know, really strange story. That guy was at the end of his career, about to retire, and then he starts taking drug money. He'd been the deputy head of Merseyside Drug Squad. He was a, he was a, um, a DCI, um, a detective chief inspector, and had, I mean, he was well known to, to Customs and, and his fellow police officers. He'd, he'd been a pretty good and pretty successful drug investigator throughout the 1980s and probably would have known more than anyone pretty much in Liverpool about the drugs trade. Um, and I don't think there'd ever been any indications previously that he was corrupt. But um, while Warren was in prison, um, uh, or just before, um, there was um, an incident uh, at a nightclub and it involved um, uh, allegations, of an attempted murder allegation against a particular individual. And Warren intervened because he was very friendly with the guy's father and um, remotely tried to find out what he could about the strength of the police case and if there were any weaknesses in it and if the case could be dropped or, or circumvented. And uh, was able, through intermediaries, to um, get through to Elmore Davis, who leaked information back for what seems in the end a relatively small amount of money. I mean, I think it was less in the end in total, about £20,000, but the, uh, the, a, a bug was secretly planted in Davis's apartment and the evidence against him in the end was pretty compelling. And I think in the end he got six years, six and a half years for corruption. And he'd be one of the most serious, uh, most senior British police officers ever, in, ever uh, convicted of that kind of offence. So another kind of record for, for Curtis Warren, the biggest heroin importer, the biggest cocaine importer and uh, has managed to to tap up the um, the highest-ranking police officer to ever go on the payroll of a drug gang. Incredible. So he's released in 2007 and he's not long out when he's he's arrested again and prosecuted for trying to set up uh, a drug ring into Jersey. Um, and he's locked up there um, where he goes on to have an affair with a, a prison officer and... In 2013, as we as we mentioned at the beginning, he is uh, asked to pay up the nearly 200 million he has made from his drug trafficking, fails to do so, and gets 10 more years. So um, he's he's in prison. He's serving his time, I think, in the in the UK. But I suppose this brings us on to um, and and your book, Drug Wars, deals with this the the history of of gangland, the rise of organised crime in UK and. A number of chapters focus on Liverpool. But what was Curtis Warren's legacy in Liverpool? After his conviction in Holland, his immediate legacy was that um, the Crayfish team and others um, 
when they in, were investigating other gangs who, if you like, were continuing the trade, they found that at least half a dozen of the biggest gangs who were still importing or developing the importation of drugs into the UK uh, from Liverpool had links to Warren. So his his legacy was that he had this, this, this network, which even though now he, in many ways, the figurehead went to prison, it continued and in many ways blossomed without him. It had basically been set on a course now that was effectively unstoppable. Um, and... It was the cocaine trade, I think, in particular, more than anything, which which made the huge profits for these guys. Um, and that's continued and, and continues to this day. Um, we, we still see criminals from the city cropping up now all over the world. You know, I think one guy's just been arrested in Dubai, I think, a, a major um, target. Um, you know, all over Europe, um, the, the relationships that they've built with South American producers have just got stronger and stronger. Uh, the amounts that they seem to be able to sell have got bigger and bigger. We've seen a level of violence which has afflicted the streets of Merseyside, which actually wasn't present there in the 90s. That's that's a relatively... I think the drugs of... You, you, you're aware, obviously, of this phenomenon. We have a county lines. Um, mm. About a dozen years ago, I think there was a recognition between people working in this field, that um, they were seeing more and more small drug dealing networks in effectively county towns, so not the biggest, not the biggest cities in the UK, but, but um, more rural or provincial areas, who were being supplied or directed by people from the big cities. And they were often um, using people who were very young, uh, it was often built around a particular phone or mobile phone network, sometimes involved um, severe coercion um, or what would almost be regarded in some places as kind of human slavery or certainly exploitation of minors, um, sometimes involved what was called cuckooing, so basically forcing people, often drug users, to allow their houses to be used as a, as a base. Uh, and somebody... Uh, coined the term county lines to describe uh, this phenomenon. And it's suddenly, it, it, it's now become a, a, a huge sort of um, way of law enforcement identifying particularly vulnerable people working in the drugs trade. But actually the, 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 the forebears of county lines had existed since at least the early 90s in the UK. And again, often with Liverpool links. Liverpool was such an important centre of importation of drugs that... Um, the local market in Liverpool was saturated pretty quickly. It's not a huge city. It's a big city, but it's not a huge city. And so then the dealers from there started to move out and to expand, often to areas where there was little or no competition, but where they could, anywhere they could find a market, the South Coast, uh, the East Coast, um, Scotland, and um, a lot of them supplied Ireland as well um, in, the, in the early days. So these could be said to be, if you like, the precursors for county lines. I think what's unique about county lines is that the coke is um, it's so cheap now because it's so prevalent that it's reaching now markets that even 20 years ago, when, so it's affordable now for people of an age who wouldn't have been buying it to, you know, 20 years ago. And with that is, comes the accompanying violence, you know, where you have these youth gangs competing for territory or competing for these lines. And that is relatively new. And we saw that in the city of Liverpool itself, and now we've seen it spread as well to other cities. Gun violence, and in particular knife violence, uh, and with very young people, often the victims. Mm. I mean, we can see that. You can absolutely see that here, the push into all the rural counties and towns and the smallest um you know, populated parts of Ireland, you're able to purchase and identify who to purchase from, um, and they're being they're being supplied. It obviously happened in the UK quicker. It's the marketing, basically, isn't it? And it starts with the Colombians pushing into Europe and pushing, pushing, pushing their product. It's getting cheaper all the time. The bigger the shipments are coming in, and it's just been pushed out all over the place. Um, do you think that? So Curtis Warren, as we as we said at the beginning, is um, possibly going to be released over the next couple of years. Um, do you think, firstly, he'll return 
to Liverpool? And secondly, would he survive now with that increasing violence with the younger gangs? You know, you said earlier that he, you know, he he didn't, um, you know, he, he liked to do his business quietly and not cause rows and, you know, murders and stuff like that. W- w- would he be, would he be still tough enough to survive now in the new Liverpool? I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd hate to speculate on what he might do. I, I really don't have that sort of level of insight into his psychology. I think he he knows, and the people, his friends know, I mean, he would be crazy to return to the business, first and foremost, because he's going to be under, or, you know, or feel like he's under almost total surveillance. Um, you know, e- even if he isn't, anybody he deals with would immediately suspect that he was. So, and, and I, I have no doubt, I mean, he, he he has said in one of the very rare interviews he's ever given to a, a Guardian journalist, Helen Pidd, and he, he doesn't usually talk to journalists at all. Um, he said that he hated England and he wanted to to get away. And you can you can understand why, you know, he's, he's spent um, um, most of the last or 25 years of his life in prison. Um but yes, of course. The, I mean, the the environment has changed completely now. You know, um, there it is so diffuse now. The the guys who were running it twenty years ago are not running it anymore. There's new faces all the time. There's new faces coming after the new faces. Um, the levels of violence have increased. Um, you you'd be you'd be. Cra- I mean, it's it's like a it's almost like an old boxer trying to you know duke it out with the well not just with the 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 new fighters on the block but also when there's been lots of rule changes as well and they're now fighting in a way that you wouldn't have even fought 20 years ago so um you know it it, it would be um it would be crazy mm. well look um both books we've mentioned there today and you have other books all of which are very well researched and fascinating cocky and drug wars i'd recommend them to anybody um peter walsh thank you very much thanks nicola From sundayworld.com, this is Crime World, produced by Ian Mullaney. Available online and on all podcast platforms. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. And if you want to get in touch, check out our Facebook page, Crime World with Nicola Talent. <laughs>